Hello, everybody. Welcome to A Year Ago Today. I'm your host, Tyler Fowler, and I am so happy to have you here with me. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Ah, I'm so excited for today's episode, and in fact, I'm switching it up a little bit. Up until this point in the podcast, I have been simply releasing the episodes in the order that they were recorded. However, I recorded an episode this morning that felt, that feels so timely that I've decided to air that episode immediately and push the rest of the schedule by a week. So I wanted to just let you know that things are happening a little bit out of order and also let you know how excited I am to share this episode with you. So in this conversation, I am speaking with Jill Filipovich, who she's a personal hero of mine. She's like one of those people you can't believe you're lucky enough to actually kind of be friends with. (laughs) I met Jill many years ago through Sally, and it's been such a pleasure to watch this woman's career you know, blossom and to see her voice become more and more prominent. She is a, I would call her, her website says she's a journalist. I would say that she's a feminist journalist and an activist and an advocate for human rights. She's the author of an incredible book, The H Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness. She's a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. She's a columnist for Cosmopolitan and CNN. She has writing credits all over the place. She's got serious cred, is what I'm trying to say. So the reason I decided to go ahead and air this episode immediately is because in this episode, Jill and I dive into so many topics that are feeling super alive for me in my life right now and that are also that I'm also seeing play out around me on social media. So we start by talking about, you know, kind of fear of visibility and what it's like to use your voice, and then we get into a conversation around what it's like to be using your voice as a white woman in the world and to encounter situations wherein you are blinded by your privilege in ways that you weren't even aware you were blinded. And if you are involved in the personal growth world, you may be present to some of what's been unfolding Danielle Laporte, who is a, you know, superstar coach whose work has served so many people, she has recently made a pretty serious misstep in some marketing and used images in a way that was offensive. And women of color have really stepped up to call her out on that. And as a result, what I'm witnessing in the social media sphere around all this is this conversation wherein women of color are really stepping up and stepping in and using their voices. And a lot of white women are, (laughs) are having an experience of saying the wrong thing or asking the wrong question and not realizing how simply the way we are approaching these interactions is perpetuating a system of white supremacy and of oppression, how our biases are so, hmm, so like intrinsic in our point of view that we don't even know the lines we're crossing. So this is something that's recently come up for me in my personal life, wherein I've been really uh, setting some boundaries with um, misogyny, with men who are aggressive toward me, in ways that are unwarranted. I've been setting boundaries in many of my intimate relationships. And I've also been increasingly present to, as I set those boundaries, how I'm witnessing the symptoms of internalized misogyny that result from us living in patriarchy that are, you know, rampant all over the place all day, every day. So Like I said, this just feels like a really, really timely conversation around how we can continue to engage around these topics that might be really charged and how we can assume responsibility for educating ourselves uh, while at the same time being discerning around the way we're open to receiving criticism and the way we're open to engaging in conversation, the way we keep ourselves safe even as we expand our own understanding. And I think that's probably all I really need to say about the content. I will say that 
I'm going to put links in the show notes to Jill's book, to her website. You should follow her on social media. She is writing all over the place. Every time I read something she writes, I'm like, gosh, she's so smart. <laughs> and yeah, what Jill said, that's what I believe. Um, and I'm also going to link in the show notes everything that I can find to support you in digesting this article from an article that addresses the Danielle Laporte situation to, um, there's a Lenny Letter article that Jill refers to in here. So all of that's going to be in the show notes if you want to go through and do any more in-depth reading around the things that we're talking about. The last thing that I want to bring up before we get to the episode is that my dear friend, former co-host, current producer, Sally Mercedes, if you haven't heard me talking about this before, um, I'm happy to tell you now, she is putting together what she's calling the Radically Sacred Retreat. And it's a spiritual retreat for women of color that's happening in the Dominican Republic in August. She has filled the retreat itself to capacity and she's operating a waitlist right now. And she is also still soliciting financial support. So if you are someone who wants to give back, I would say especially <laughs> if you're a white woman who has been looking for ways to support and be an ally to women of color, that making a financial contribution to what Sally's trying to create is one really, really beautiful way that you can do that. So I'm going to put a link to Sally's donate page in the show notes. And if you go click through to make a donation, just let Sally know how you heard about it. Let her know you came to the podcast so that we can kind of, you know, <laughs> see if anybody out there is listening. <sighs> is that everything? What else did I want to mention? The last thing I want to mention is that in discussing what's been going on with Danielle Laporte in this episode, I laugh a little bit. And I want to be clear that that laughter is not to make light of the situation. I think it's more of an uncomfortable laughter around how much I empathize with what Danielle's experiencing right now because I have been in a situation where I was unintentionally aggressive toward women of color inside the context of attempting to support them with their spiritual growth or their personal development. Um, there's actually a name for this. It's called white saviorism. And it is, I did not know at the time that I was perpetuating it, but I do know now it really is, um, something that perpetuates racism and white supremacy. So when you hear me laugh about what's going on in the culture right now, I want to be clear that it's not necessarily because I think it's funny. It's because I, I'm glad that I'm having the opportunity to watch and witness and learn from Danielle's experience. And I can also see how closely tied it's to how closely tied it is to some of my own past experiences, um, with unintentional aggression. So all that said, enjoy the episode. If you like it, please share it, uh, far and wide and it would be really wonderful if you could also consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes because it really helps. And follow us on social media at A Year Ago Podcast. If you have anything you'd like to share around your experience listening, you can email a year ago podcast at gmail.com and I would love to hear from you. Whew, okay, I think that's it. Enjoy this week's episode. Hi, Jill. Hi, Dyla. <laughs> uh, I keep vacillating between already having the recording going when people come on the line so that I can capture <laughs> our natural hellos <laughs> or waiting until they arrive and then hitting record and then doing that awkward hello, even though I've already said <laughs> hi. I think both ways work. It's okay. Our hellos weren't that exciting. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <sighs> 
I have to tell you before we jump in that last night I texted Sally to tell her that we were doing this today. And her response was, I want to talk to Jill. Oh, <laughs> give her a hug when you see her. I, I miss her. I will. Yeah, I, I sent her the link to join us. And I was like, if you can hop on as a surprise guest, it'll be so fun. But it's 5.45 her time. so Yeah, it's so early in the morning there. Uh, time difference makes it hard. Maybe like halfway through she'll pop in. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> Let's keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> Okay, so before we dive in and I ask you how you were feeling a year ago today, I'm going to ask you to finish the sentence, a year ago today, fill in the blank. A year ago, oh, right now my cat is hitting my laptop, sorry. <laughs> a year ago today, um, my first book came out. Ah, and today's the actual anniversary, right? I think today is the actual anniversary, yeah. Um, and the paperback actually came out yesterday, so a nice way <gasps> to market. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so we'll definitely put links to all of the things in all of the show notes so you can go buy Jill's book and absorb her brilliance <laughs> through osmosis, <laughs> which is what I try to do. <sighs> all right, so Jill, now if you wouldn't mind, close your eyes and take a couple deep breaths. And allow yourself to go back to a year ago today and let some feeling come into your body. And once you've really kind of landed in that feeling, share with me in one word what it is. Anxious. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that. I Coming into this conversation, I've been... And in my life lately, I've been thinking so much about fear of visibility. And I, so that's part of the reason I was so excited to talk to you about this is to kind of figure out how that tied into your whole journey around this. So can you, before we go any further, give everybody a quick, you know, two sentence summary of what the book is about? Sure. So the book is called The H-Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness, and is basically looking at what kind of institutional, political, and systematic changes we would need um, to prioritize female happiness and pleasure in our world. Mm. I love it. I'm, now I'm even more sad that Sally's not here because prioritizing <laughs> pleasure is her whole game. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Her retreat sounds amazing. Oh, I know. I know. I'm so excited for her. She's got it full, and now there's just a wait list. That's awesome. That's so great. She's still looking for funding. So anybody out there listening who wants to support Sally in hosting a retreat for women of color, I'll put info on how you can do that in the show notes as well. And please do. It sounds absolutely incredible. So I hope that she's able to get tons of support from your listeners. I hope so too. Oh, come on guys. <laughs> okay. Back to you though. <laughs> so, Anxious. Can you tell me, can you tell me in what regard you were feeling anxious and like what were some of the thoughts that were coming up for you as it's so interesting because like on book release day, it's too late. It's too late to stop anything. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is coming out tomorrow or today, this thing that I've created, whether or not I feel ready, whether or not I want it to in that like last minute for me, I'm imagining myself being in like the last minute grips of fear. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, I think this sort of feeling ready part um, was the biggest challenge. I, you know, I definitely didn't feel ready. I didn't feel like the book was ready to come out into the world. You know, I wanted more time with it. Um, that wasn't a possibility for a lot of reasons. And so, yeah, of course, you know, you spend so much time on a project. And I think especially you know, the truth is I got to the end of it and what I, you know, what I wish had been possible was to put it away for, for a couple months or for a year, you know, and then go back and revisit it and mold it and shape it. And the reality of doing that is, you know, it would have taken me five years to publish the thing, which is not really tenable. Um, so I, you know, I understand why it had to come into the universe when it did. Um, you know, but of course, like me going back and even reading it during book readings, there was always things, you know, I wish I had changed this word. I wish that sentence wasn't so awkward. Um, mm. And then there was also the fear, you know, what if people hate it? And even a bigger fear than that, you know, what if I got something wrong? 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was citing a lot of studies and figures and quoting a lot of different people and, you know, did a ton of interviews. And you always have, you know, that kind of little, um, you know, tickly question in the back of your head of like, you know, what if I wrote this stat down wrong? Or what if I mischaracterized this? Or, you know, there's, there's just so much room to make those kind of errors. And, you know, I paid a fact checker to go through the whole thing because publishers don't do that. Um, you know, but still I had this, you know, deep fear, not just that people would hate it, which, you know, I think I'd sort of expected some degree of that, um, you know, but that I could have possibly done something terribly wrong. Um, which thankfully didn't happen, <laughs> but was something I was very afraid of. Uh, it's so it's so interesting. I'm finding um, throughout the process of recording these these podcasts that what I what I do is I constantly make things about me. <laughs> and um, as you're listening, I'm I'm thinking about the anxiety that I feel any time I start to speak publicly, even if it's only on Facebook, around topics that have real charge socially, whether it's um, feminism or racism, that I almost always have that really powerful fear come up of like, what if I get this wrong? What if somebody has to call me out for something that I'm like unintentionally, like you said, mischaracterizing? Right. And yeah, I mean, I think especially around things that are not that maybe we're not, you know, personal experts in. I think for women, this is um, kind of a common feeling. I think it's why you see so many women uh, sort of sticking to the personal essay universe because I'm like, it's sort of like, all right, if mm-hmm. I'm an expert on one thing, at least it's my life. Um, <laughs> but anytime we kind of try and branch out of that, I think there can be there can be quite a bit of anxiety. And you know, one thing I was trying to be fairly cognizant cognizant of in the book was not just writing about my own experiences and universalizing those out as like, this is what womanhood looks like. Um, And trying to talk to women who had very different experiences than me. Um, Trying to bring, you know, a more intersectional approach to my work. Um, And to not assume that, you know, a woman looks like an upper middle class, educated white lady and, you know, who lives in Brooklyn. you know, but obviously, like, that also is who I am, and that comes with a whole set, you know, it comes with its own set of blinders. And, mm-hmm. you know, I tried to work to challenge that and, you know, tried to kind of expand um, kind of as wide as I could. But, you know, but of course there's a fear that, like, maybe I did it wrong. Maybe I didn't do it well enough. Um, I think that fear is probably good and healthy. <laughs> And at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, you know, I think it's better to try, you know, to try and to maybe do it imperfectly and to be challenged um, than to just say, you know, I'm, I'm too afraid to wade into these waters. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to put even a a toe forward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. I don't know if you, there's been a whole lot unfolding in the personal growth world the last few days. Are you familiar with Danielle Laporte? No, although I, I've seen a few rumblings about this on Facebook. I can't say I'm super familiar with exactly what happened, but mm-hmm. I've been kind of loosely seeing discussions of this. Yeah, so essentially, I don't, I don't mean to, to laugh. However, it's just like I can so easily imagine myself being Danielle. Um, she is releasing a new program. It's a 12-month program. It's called Lighter. And from what I've read about the program, it sounds really incredible. It's about like having stronger boundaries with your technology, you know, having deeper connections inside your friendships. It's like this really beautiful framework. However, she unfortunately chose to include some images of black bodies in her marketing. And when people called her out on it, (laughs) she wasn't, well, she issued an apology, but she also like deleted their comments, effectively silencing them. And it's just so interesting to me, this idea of not being too afraid to speak, but also not being too proud to like step it and take a step back when you've been humbled or called out on something that you didn't understand because what you said about those blinders that you have, the thing about blinders is that you don't know you have them until they're taken off. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> uh, 
So I'm wondering if there's any experiences that you've had, maybe since the book came out, but maybe not, around having those kind of blinders removed in a way that supported you in widening that perspective from a woman that you represent being just kind of the extension of yourself, you know, as you mentioned, the upper middle class, well-educated white woman living in Brooklyn to that more expansive, much more inclusive um, kind of reach. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've had those experiences dozens and dozens of times. Um, you know, I can't say that I've always responded in <laughs> in the best way. Um, you know, sometimes it's been in situations where it's been someone who I know, who I have a relationship with, um, who knows me and trusts me and, you know, responds to some, you know, some bit of, of ignorance that I put into the universe, um, you know, with kind of patience and gentleness and, you know, a sort of kind explanation. Um, and obviously, you know, that's, tremendously helpful. Um, and I've also had situations where people who I didn't know, um, who didn't have any reason to trust me or to assume kind of good intentions on my part, um, or maybe just didn't really care mm -hmm. about intentions either way, um, which I think is totally fair, you know, also kind of would, you know, have come to me often, this has often been kind of not face to face, but, you know, on the internet, on Twitter, on, you know, blog comments or whatever, um, to, uh, you know, essentially say that whatever it was that I had just put out there was tremendously flawed or even offensive, um, or wrong. And, you know, obviously when people, um, approach you in a way that feels more confrontational, I think it's a really natural human response to kind of get your back up, um, and to get very defensive. And that has certainly been my reaction in a lot of cases. Um, uh, you know, I think one thing that has been tremendously helpful to me is to remember that if I've done something that harms someone else, it's not their responsibility to then kind of treat me with kid gloves to make me see that, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And then anytime you're engaging in a public space, if you're writing some, especially if you're writing something um, or if you're speaking, you are there to have a conversation. You're not there to just impart wisdom and have everybody else smile and nod. And sometimes conversations are going to be confrontational and sometimes, you know, they're going to involve um, kind of negative <laughs> feedback on your words or your work or your perspective. And, you know, you can't obviously take every bit of that to heart. I think it's a real skill to figure out what is kind of productive feedback, even if it's being relayed to me in a way that makes, you know, that makes me feel defensive, um, or that is bringing up defensiveness in me. Um, and what is just like somebody being mean to me on the internet, <laughs> those are two mm -hmm. different things. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, there's sort of a million examples of this that I can think of, but you know, for me, one, of, one that always kind of stands out, and this is, you know, probably 10 years old at this point, um, I had written something on a blog I used to run called Feminist, and it was about um, sexual harassment in the workplace and the sort of like lower grade stuff that isn't harass. It's not harassment, but it is kind of gendered differential treatment. So, for example, you know, a boss always wanting you, you know, asking like the you know the young women in the office to like get his coffee or take notes during meetings or whatever. Um, and I framed it as you know this is a thing that women experience. This is what, like, this, you know, sort of lack of gender equity in professional workplaces, you know, often manifests as. It's not just, like, somebody grabbing your ass. Mm -hmm. um, and another blogger whose name uh, is Latoya Peterson, who wrote for a blog called Racialicious, you know, I'm going to probably get the, fact, the details on this wrong. I don't remember if it was in a comment or if it was on her own blog, but her contribution to that conversation was basically, like, you know, as a young black woman bosses aren't asking me to get their coffee. They're not asking me to take notes during meetings. Like the differential gender treatment is also racialized. You know, I know that the fact that my first name is Latoya means that somebody's going to treat my resume differently than if my first name were, you know, Rebecca. 
Um, I was praying that you were going to say Becky. <laughs> right? I thought it, and then I was like, I should probably say Rebecca. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but that, I mean, it sounds stupid, and, it, you know, it was, you know, is ignorance. I, I hadn't thought about it that way before. I hadn't thought about the fact that, you know, the kind of ways in which gender is, you know, that women are even sexualized, obviously, is very racialized. The kind of ways mm-hmm. in which we're treated as less serious in the workplace. Um that women of color experience that as well, obviously, um, but not in the same way that white women experience it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and this is true, obviously, kind of across every issue that we think of as, as women's issues. Um, you know, and I, that wasn't, so, you know, Latoya did not, like, send me a private note to be like, let me hold your hand and walk you through this. Um, you know, she wasn't a jerk about mm-hmm. it, but she was just like, this is what this is. Um, and it was really informative and, and instructive for me. Um, and I think about that example often and, you know, try to kind of carry, you know, that little bit of wisdom that she imparted, um, you know, with me in the rest of my work. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. So, so beautiful and so relevant. And I am listening to you talk and I'm like, yes, exactly. That's the same experience I've had where I've tried to speak up like on behalf of, you know, all that is woman without being aware that the experience of womanhood is so racialized, you know? And it's also like, not that this is an excuse because I don't think that it is, but if you haven't experienced it or you haven't been close with someone who shared their experience with you, it's impossible to really know unless you really, really take the impetus to look around. Right. And, you know, this is the sort of unfortunate reality is that for, especially for women, for women of color, anybody who kind of isn't a part of this, you know, kind of white middle-class educated paradigm, that paradigm is so universalized. It's in our movies, our media, um, you know, it dominates our feminist discourse that even people that haven't had that experience tend to kind of intellectually know what it is, right? Because it's so sort of pervasively discussed. But there's a real imbalance, I think, on the other side (laughs) of then Mm -hmm. expecting, you know, those of us who kind of have more relative power, whose experience is largely reflected in the mainstream discourse, um, to look outside of that and to realize that the sort of mainstream discourse, mainstream feminism, um, you know, our sort of broader culture at large is not particularly, you know, accurate um, and is not particularly reflective of, you know, how, how most women in the world experience their lives. Mm-hmm. So true. Yeah. What's really present for me is, is the, the truth that we have to be taught how to look outside ourselves, just like we have to be taught how to engage in, in conflict. You know, it's like that... I feel like when, if you're not used to conflict, if somebody calls you out on something, you either get defensive, as you've mentioned, or run away, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that those are two skill sets that we would be very well served to be passing on to our children as we have them of like, here's how you deal with feedback that's coming in that doesn't feel good. And also, here's how you make it a routine practice to look outside yourself and your own experience for any information in the world that might be important for you to have, but that might not be coming to you based on who you are, how you look, where you're from, all that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's so crucial. Um, and you know, and it's, it's a thing I think about often that, you know, it's, it's, it's been a real challenge for me to balance that openness, you know, even to kind of harsh and critical feedback, um, you know, with the fact that, I live my life as a feminist writer on the internet. Like I get so much harsh and awful feedback all of the time. Um, Mm. You know, obviously much of which is like not intended to broaden the discourse is just intended to kind of be cruel. (laughs) Yeah. To make you smaller and make you silence. Right. right? Um, You know, but uh, there is, you know, usually obviously you can kind of differentiate between those two things, but, but sometimes there is kind of like a murky area where it gets difficult to, you know, to try and suss out, okay, you know, is this just me being defensive about something that is actually crucial for me to hear? 
Um, you know, and it's just the way that it is, you know, being framed that, you know, that is making me kind of react in, in not the best way. Um, you know, or is this coming from somebody who is kind of using the language of social justice um, mm. as, uh, you know, a, a, as a cudgel <laughs> um, and is actually not particularly interested, you know, in, you know, the kind of stated goal of mutual liberation and, you know, is instead just interested in sort of beating up on somebody. Um, mm-hmm. And I think especially, you know, again, women and girls have this propensity um, uh, to kind of always manage the emotions and feelings of others. And, you know, to especially those of us who are feminists, mm-hmm. especially those of us who care about social justice, you know, to always want to be the, you know, the people that are open, that are open to being called out, that, you know, are trying to be the best advocates possible that are trying to kind of, you know, embrace, um, you know, everyone (laughs) and everything. And I think that that, you know, is a good impulse, but it can also result in a whole (laughs) lot of self-destructive behavior. Um, You know, and it can mean opening yourself up to to people that Mm. don't actually really have, you know, both your best interests and the best interests of, you know, broader social justice activism at heart either. and that can be, you know, when you're talking about kids, I don't, I don't have them, but, you know, when I'm talking to younger women, trying to carve out that space of like, yes, be open to criticism, be open to feedback, you know, adjust, adjust, you know, remember that you're in a conversation, um, you know, but also that doesn't mean that you have to, you know, be kind of hammered into silence. Um mm-hmm. You know, or that you have to allow yourself to be, you know, sort of viciously attacked by people who, frankly, are more interested, you know, in making, a, you know, scoring points <laughs> than they are in actually facilitating any kind of real progress. Um, and that is a real dynamic in our movements. And I think, you know, it's it's not a great one. Mm-hmm. You got to have the ability to set boundaries around how you will and will not engage when when it starts to become clear that there's that there's a lot more at play than the broadening of the discourse. You know, like I recently had an interaction where um, a man was asking me questions on Facebook and I was engaging really respectfully and openly at first. However, you know, I expressed to that person that I, I got to a point where I was like, I'm not feeling safe around this conversation in this context, given our history together. And he kept pushing and I was like, okay, now this is no longer a conversation. Now this has switched into something else as it is about power dynamics far more than it is the conversation. Mm-hmm. That, that instance when what we're talking about is no longer what's really, really the point of what's unfolding between us. The point is how you're trying to make me feel. Right, exactly. Ugh. Man, such juicy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Well, back to the topic of your book. (laughs) I loved what you said about, you know, you would have loved to put it away and have time for that knowledge to integrate and then come back and do some fine tuning. And coming into this conversation, one of the questions I had for you is what knowledge from the book you find that you have really further integrated, either in the way you're understanding the world or in the way that you're living your life in the time since the book came out a year ago? Mm. Um, So one of the things that, you know, became really clear in writing the book is that a lot of the ways we talk about happiness and, you know, even sort of women's rights are are very individualistic. and obviously, you know, like a lot of what I do to be happy is, is highly individualistic. I go to yoga, I try and foster, you know, a community of women. Um, I tend to my relationships. All of that stuff is super important. And the research that I came across um, in writing the book really kind of emphasized to me how crucial that is and how important it is to be really intentional about how you build kind of your own little universe um, in the world. But what was also really obvious is that that stuff is just never going to be enough. Um, That these changes have to be systematic, they have to be political, they have to be institutional. 
um, you know, it's, it's started to drive me even more crazy, you know, hearing people, especially in the kind of like wellness and self-care space who really focus on women to talk about, you know, how they, they try not to talk about politics or you know, they mm. <laughs> try and steer clear of, you know, controversy. Um, cause I just don't believe we can build kind of a, a caring and sane world, um, without that stuff. But that, you know, that emphasis, I think, that came out of the book um, on systems, trying not to focus so much on individuals, I think has been really helpful in trying to navigate our current political reality, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. of everything from obviously our, our president, who is, a, you know, kind of force for evil in the world, um, you know, and then even kind of <laughs> to talking, put it lightly, right? Um, and then even yeah. you know, I, I write a lot about sexual harassment and assault, and so the the Me Too movement and these stories have been a big part of my work for the past year. Um, and it's been kind of an interesting process to, you know, now sort of months after this movement um, has really, you know, or months into this movement gaining steam. To be thinking about, okay, how do we, like, yes, we do need, we need every investigation of every powerful man who has done wrong. Those are all really important components. But what is the kind of bigger picture story here about how our institutions enable this? What are the bigger picture solutions about how we make sure that, you know, A, men don't feel entitled to do this, but, you know, B, when they do, their reporting mechanisms and transparent investigations and, you know, all of the things that you need, that you need systems for, that you need policies for, um, that can't just come down, you know, to the individual women who have the courage to finally tell their stories. Um, So, you know, that kind of piece of the book, that push to look at what are the bigger, uh, the bigger ties here, you know, as opposed to just the kind of like, individual personal stuff um, has been really crucial and has been something that I've been, you know, really kind of ruminating on more and more in the past year. Mm-hmm. And I have a question coming up that's more about your personal life. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, so you've gotten married also since the book has come out. Yeah, three months ago. Thank you. Oh. Um, as we're talking, like I said, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about how these themes are relevant in my life. And I've been, I've been working a lot more lately with how I can do the work to shift the system within my one-on-one relationships that I have, especially with men. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking, I was on a walk this morning, actually, and I was thinking about writing something around, you know, like how you can, how you can work to dismantle patriarchy, just literally by refusing to, (laughs) refusing to take shit really from the, (laughs) from the men in your life when you're like, oh, this thing that's playing out, like that you do to me multiple times a week, like actually that's a microaggression. Actually, that's really rooted in this system and, you know, going back to talking about the conversation around blinders, it's like, there are all these behavior that I see men that I'm in relationship with embodying just the way like that they're embodying these values of patriarchy in the same way that I sometimes unknowingly embody the values of patriarchy or of white supremacy, you know, without being aware of it. And I guess I'm wondering if that's something that you've thought about at all in terms of your personal relationships and if any of that has come up for you since you've entered into a marriage which is such a you know such a traditional arrangement and something that I think any any feminist has to think long (laughs) and hard before she enters into and have her own like very clear terms about why she's doing it and so I would love to know anything that that whole share of mine sparks for you if you're open to sharing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, so much. (laughs) You know, I I don't believe that in the world we live in now, heterosexual relationships can ever be fully egalitarian. Um, Mm. I just don't. That's a big statement. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I realize it's like a super depressing thing to say. Um, But, you know, we live in a deeply misogynist world. And we're all swimming in mm-hmm. it. And, you know, I think within that, all of us, you know, women and men both have internalized a whole lot of misogyny. Um, 
and a whole lot of you know assumptions, even very quiet ones about you know what especially I think in the romantic sphere, you know, what kind of our roles and, and obligations look like. Um, you know, I obviously would not have married the person I married <laughs> if I had not been pretty confident, <laughs> um, you know, that we were kind of doing the, be the best, you know, way we possibly could do with, within, within this pretty, you know, ridiculous universe that, that we're all living in. Um, you know, but yeah, I mean, of course, there are times, you know, when I think I especially really get my back up if I feel like, you know, I'm doing more of the kind of traditional female stuff, you know, if I'm <laughs> doing more of the like mm -hmm. cleaning the house, you know, or like managing our calendar <laughs> you know, or, or whatever it is, um, you know, I do do more of like the cooking because I really like to cook. So that works out well. Um, you know, but uh, there are ways, I think, in which, you know, my relationship does kind of fall along certain traditional lines. Um, I think the way that we've dealt with that is, you know, by checking in, by talking about it, by having lots of long conversations about kind of who's kind of comfortable doing what. Um, you know, and if I feel like things are unbalanced, you know, I never feel like I can't say that. <laughs> um, and mm -hmm. I feel like it gets taken seriously and we work to address it, um, you know, or what happens is my partner says, okay, well, you know, that's, that's what you've seen, you know, let me tell you what I did today, <laughs> you know, to kind of help this household run. Um, mm -hmm. and we'll point, you know, I often feel like, you know, some of the stuff that I do is just, you know, goes unseen and you know, what will often happen is I'll point it out and I'll say, okay, well, here's like all the unseen stuff that I did, um, which I think mm -hmm. is really helpful. Um, and I think helps kind of remind me that, you know, my perspective, of course, um, is important and, you know, is mine, but it's only 50% <laughs> of the reality in our shared household. Um, you know, getting married, I think I talked about this on the podcast last time, you know, something that I had really mixed feelings about. It was not something I ever wanted to do um, or something that I feel like is kind of a necessarily good social institution um, or a particularly <laughs> feminist one. Um, but at the same time, you know, I had the extraordinary luck of meeting somebody that I wanted, knew I know I want to be with her the rest of my life. Um, and it just, you know, given the options on the table, marriage felt like the kind of most accurate way in our particular social universe to define what this relationship means. Um, and that was important. And, you know, maybe this will sound super lame, but our wedding was really fun. And you know, I've only been married for three months, but it's pretty great. <laughs> you know, and, I, and I feel really lucky to have, to have gotten to enter into this, you know, flawed, patriarchal, all the things, um, institution with, you know, with somebody who is, really fantastic um, and who I feel like really helps me, you know, to flourish. Mm. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I also think that what you just said is so gorgeous about, you know, it's not necessarily that we remove ourselves entirely from our participation in the system. It's that we only participate in the system in a way that feels an integrity for us which is such a nuanced way to approach life. You know, I feel like <laughs> there have definitely been times where I've been like, I want to be off the grid. I want to move to the woods and like, <laughs> you know, have a farm and not participate in capitalism and not participate in the patriarchy and just totally cut myself off from it. Um, however, it's so much richer to stay engaged and to figure out how to stay engaged in a way that's in integrity. So I love the way you've just framed <laughs> your decision to enter into marriage. It's really gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's this kind of often sort of knee-jerk line, you know, that feminism is about choice. And this kind of like, you know, I choose to like wear makeup and a short skirt, and so I am therefore empowered. And like, I chose to get married, and so therefore it's feminist. And I chose to take my husband's, I didn't take my husband's last name, but you know, I whoever mm -hmm. says, I, you know, I chose to take my husband's last name. Therefore, you know, how, how can 
you know, feminism is about choice. You can't, you can't judge what other women do. And that's not true. I mean, feminism isn't about choice. Feminism <laughs> is, about, you know, is about dismantling power structures. You're like, and we can um, still judge what other women do. <laughs> right. I mean, feminism is not just like, let's all do whatever we want with no judgment, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. There was an essay a couple of months ago, I think, in Lenny Letter, which is Lena Dunham's um, Ugh, email newsletter. Love Lenny Letter. Um, and it was by Emily Ratajkowski, who's a like a supermodel. She was in the Robin Thicke Blurred Lines video. Anyway, she wrote this whole essay about how, like, it's her choice to, you know, be sexy and that to her is feminism. And I was just like, I'm going to chuck my computer across the room. Um, <laughs> like, yes, totally. You know, I, like most women in the world, engage in some things that, you know, are approved by patriarchal society and they feel good. Like, I, you know, also wear skirts and heels and makeup and you know, I got married and all these things. I'm like, it's fun. I like doing those things, but me choosing them does not make them inherently feminist. Right. Um, and I think part of our responsibility, um, as feminists, as people who care about this stuff is not to make sure that we live our lives so in line with our politics that we kind of remove the, the possibility for, you know, for all of our imperfect pleasures. Um, but to recognize that, you know, we live in this imperfect place and there are going to be things that we do that feel good and that that is okay. And it doesn't have to be feminist to make it okay, right? We can still sort of recognize the political complications of whatever it is that we're choosing to do um, and also still make the choice to do it, you know, recognizing that we are feeding in to, you know, a system that ultimately is not great for women. Um, you know, but today, Wednesday, May 2nd, <laughs> these are the options on the table in front of me, and I'm going to pick the one that feels the most right. Um, you know, and that can be a tough thing, and it may, you know, perhaps not as satisfying as being like, my high heels are what empowers me as a woman. Um, but I think it's more honest. It's all, it all feels to me like being in integrity with the choices you make. And part of that is realizing when the choices you are making are not necessarily fully in alignment with the values you profess <laughs> to adhere to. Well, what else is present for you one year out from having this incredible accomplishment of your book coming into the world? Mm. Um. Well, we're moving back to the U.S., so that is kind of an interesting upcoming transition. Um, and it's been, I don't know, it's been, it's been interesting to see how, how much I kind of bristle against that, um, mm. you know, how much the current political reality in the U.S. feels overwhelming and stressful and then it's actually been nice to be several thousand miles and you know seven to eight hours ahead of it every day so there's only like a small chunk of my day that's taken up um obsessing over american <laughs> politics <laughs> and mm-hmm. kind that, of, that time difference it's really key. helps <laughs> it's been really great like twitter is so much nicer when like everyone in the u.s is in bed um <laughs> But, you know, just recognizing, I think, how being able to kind of physically remove oneself, obviously, you know, is an enormous privilege. Um, And I think it's actually been really nice to kind of have that arm's length view of the current political situation in the United States and not be so obsessed with pouring over every detail and every tweet and every, like, you know, one of the six big news stories of the day. Um... And I'm trying to figure out how I, you know, maintain that sense of distance um, while also kind of re-entering the physical space <laughs> of the United States. Yeah. Wow, that's a, that's a big challenge. And it's interesting while you're talking, I was thinking about how it's somewhat analogous to, <laughs> like, being physically in Nairobi is a little bit analogous to that, like, <laughs> that spiritual um, spiritual approach that a lot of people have where they're like, I'm not gonna, 
I'm going to remove like myself from this like political discourse, even though there's not necessarily that physical distance. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. And that now you're coming back to like re-engage in a much more active and present way. Yeah. And I mean, you know, my work is about politics. So, you know, every day Mm -hmm. I'm already writing about Donald Trump and, you know, whatever else it is that's going on in the U.S. from here. But it's been such a relief to be able to, you know, go to a dinner party. And, you know, of course, we talk about U.S. politics for some part of it, but it's not the totality of the conversation. Um, You know, it's not what I necessarily talk about in line at the coffee shop. It's not, it doesn't, it's just not the kind of, it's what I do for work, but it's not the air that I breathe. And in a lot of ways, I think it's just been so much, I think it's made me a better writer. And I think it's been so much healthier to, you know, kind of look around and realize that like, oh, right, life ticks on in the whole rest of the world. (laughs) You know, and it's not people, you know, most people are not spending their time obsessing over the kind of minutia of what the Trump administration is doing. And, you know, I think it's been good for my work and for my mental health to not be doing that. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, how exactly I bring, you know, that, that kind of, I don't know, sanity um, into my work covering this thing you know, in the country where it's actually happening and where I think it's so easy to be completely consumed by it and totally lose perspective that, you know, what Donald Trump is doing is not actually the most important thing in the universe at any given time. Sometimes it is if he's like, you know, taking us down a path to nuclear war with North Korea. But um, not every tweet is, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting. It brings us back to that, that theme from earlier that you were speaking about, you know, around kind of being super intentional with how you're crafting your own little immediate universe and how you're taking care of yourself. I read yesterday somewhere that in order to really thrive in society, it's important that women have like warrior like devotion (laughs) to their own self care (laughs) in terms of like, getting to yoga or making sure we're cultivating those friendships that support us or, you know, whatever else it is that we're doing in the name of our sanity. (laughs) Um, So I'm confident that you're going to integrate with ease, Jill. I feel like you've already been doing it. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. I was, I think anytime you also kind of change physical spaces, it's a nice time to think about, okay, what, what do I not have, you know, in my life now that I would like, you know, to integrate into it? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think a thing I've been thinking a lot about, you know, here I, I travel constantly. It, you know, is rare that I'm here for more than, you know, two or three weeks at a time. I'm kind of always, so it's very hard to create kind of rituals and routines. Um, and, you know, in as much as it is anxiety inducing to move back to the U.S. right now, there is something really appealing about being like, okay, I'm going to be in a place where I'm just going to be still traveling a lot, but moving around a lot less. Um, and so how can I, from day one, you know, integrate meaningful ritual into my life? You know, what kind of routines do I want to set? Um, what do I want that to look like? And, you know, that's something that I don't know. I've ever given much thought to, um, but feels, you know, right now, like something that is, is very necessary. I'm still sorting out what that's going to look like or what I hope it will look like, but. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've been asking myself that question about what routines and rituals I'd like to incorporate into my life for about three years (laughs) now. And I'm still sorting out that question. (laughs) Hopefully you found some good ones. (laughs) I have, I have, you know, I'll tell you what's changed my life. I think you'll appreciate this. I put my yoga mat right next to my bed so that I can't get in or out of my bed without my feet touching the yoga mat. And I've started doing just like a little bit of stretching, you know, right when I wake up and right before I go to bed as a result of it. And it's changed my life. Oh, that's so smart. My cats will use that as an opportunity to claw the mat to death, but <laughs> um. <laughs> I'll get a cat resistant mat. That's a really good idea though. Cause yeah, I mean, when you're already, as soon as you step on it, it's like, okay, yeah, I have five minutes. 
Yeah, you're like, I'm already, my feet are already on the yoga mat. I might as well drop down to child's pose and <laughs> take a couple deep breaths. Are you guys moving back to New York? Unfortunately, no. We're moving to D.C., which, uh, but, you know. Uh, I think I got really excited. Yeah, I mean, second. luckily it's close to New York. And I don't really like D.C., so I imagine <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be up in New York a lot. Mm-hmm. All right, let me see if I have any other burning questions for you before we wrap up. Well, what have you been thinking about lately? What is, what has been on your mind? Oh, so much, mostly around how to start using my voice. <laughs> you know, it's, I look up to you so much because it's something that you've been actively practicing for such a long time in your career. And I imagine also in your personal life and I'm really realizing how scared I've been to speak, mostly because I'm scared of the reactions of people who inhabit my immediate universe, but who I've not necessarily chosen, mm -hmm. <laughs> such as like my family and the family of my beloved. Um, so really, what's been so alive for me is like how to how to work with that fear of being seen. And I've been, I've been sharing a lot on the podcast around how I've been moving through that. And I think part of what's present for me is how much I would like to be a voice that's contributing to a larger dialogue that's happening and how scary that is. And if it's that scary for me, how scary it must be for so many other women who aren't used to speaking mm -hmm. up. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's uh, an interesting observation because, you know, I obviously speak a lot <laughs> and write a lot and kind of engage in these public conversations. But, you know, that's, that's a very, I, I find it's a very different animal to, to write or speak about kind of uh, politics or social justice writ large um, than it is to ever talk about, you know, myself or, you know, how I feel about something. That to me is something I, you know, do not do in public, <laughs> perhaps will never do in public. Mm -hmm. um, and that I'm always, you know, so sort of interested in, especially when I, you know, I follow you on, on Facebook and see the things that, you know, you put into the universe. And I always find it really inspiring. Um, I don't know, and, and heartening um, to see folks who are willing, you know, to be a little bit publicly vulnerable, um, you know. And to, <laughs> yeah, that's the whole game is like public vulnerability. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, to, I mean, that to me is totally terrifying. Um, I'm not even very good at being privately vulnerable. So, <laughs> like, um, creating that kind of, and I think especially right now, you know, we are, I mean, I guess always, but, you know, we are in this incredibly harsh political climate. We are in a space where cynicism and nihilism, you know, kind of reign. Um, and I think especially in my industry, in order to be seen as intelligent, um, you know, or as somebody who should be taken seriously, you have to kind of bring that affect to it. Um, and I, I just, I think there's so much humanness that we lose there and that we seem to be kind of losing mm by the day, you know, as we have both these kind of professional norms and as, you know, our, our leaders, um, you know, take things in kind of an e even harsher, uglier direction. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so it's, it's always yeah. heartening to see that, folks that, that, humanity that can't that. <laughs> Well, thank you. I feel like that's, it's interesting because I feel so much more comfortable speaking about my personal experience than kind of, you know, social justice at large, because I feel so limited in my knowledge and understanding, um, you know, because I haven't made it the sole focus of my life. <laughs> um, however, I think that for me, my, <laughs> my feminist pursuit of happiness is about learning that it's okay to be vulnerable in public and that I am empowered enough to set the boundaries that I need to keep myself safe. And that as I do that, I'm also modeling for other people how to do that so that 
we are learning how to be more human in public Mm -hmm. more of the time instead of reserving our humanity for only our partner or only our closest friends, you know, because that is a really interesting thing that's coming up for me right now is like, how often do we let ourselves be truly human and with whom are we doing Mm -hmm. that? So, ah, bomb. Thank you for... (laughs) <laughs> for reflecting that you've seen me and been heartened by me. It makes me really happy to know that. <laughs> and likewise, you know, I really appreciate your voice and your presence always. Thank you. So what's the biggest, the biggest learning that you've had in this, in this last year since your book came out? If there's one big lesson that stands out to you. Oh, gosh. Um, hmm. you know, I think a lot of it hinges on what we were just talking about. And this, frankly, you know, it didn't even really come out of the book. It, it came out of, <laughs> this is like the f- fucking bougiest example, but, um, <laughs> doing, uh, a yoga teacher training and, and working with, um, this really amazing woman who is, you know, sort of the spiritual, um, guide throughout the training and, you know, working with her on, yeah, on what we were just talking about, on, on how to be human, on looking at how much I have kind of defined my sense of self based on, you know, what I've achieved and accomplished, um, and not necessarily taking the time to, you know, think about, you know, not does my resume look like the kind of person I want to be, but am I being the kind of person I want to be. Um, you know, uh, do my, you know, sort of most deepest thoughts um, reflect that? Um, does my behavior reflect that? You know, does my work reflect that? Um, and, you know, recognizing that the answer to that a lot of the time was no. Um, <laughs> and, you know, just sort of making that space to think about, you know, my... Uh, myself and how that comes through and what I put out into the universe, um, you know, as somebody who does create a lot for public consumption. Um, and so I have been trying to fold that more into my work. I don't think it, you know, has, you know, or ever will, um, you know, make my work less confrontational, you know, or less passionate. Um, but it has made me sort of pause a bit more and, you know, think through, you know, not just how to kind of bring a variety of voices into the work that I'm doing, but also, you know, so much of feminist work and social justice work, you know, is also about countering bad ideas and, you know, often people who we presume to be bad who hold those ideas. Um, Mm -hmm. And so trying to even kind of bring a sense of humanity there, Um, you know, which does not mean like, giving hugs to every sexist and racist in the world. <laughs> I definitely don't mean it like that. Um, you know, but, but does mean, you know, how can I be more honest about, you know, what I don't know or where I'm not sure? Um, you know, how can, in this work, we leave room for people to change radically? Um, and then what does that look like? You know, that's something I've been writing about a lot in light of the Me Too stuff and, you know, Bill Cosby and kind of all of these, you know, men who have done terrible things who now, you know, want to have a comeback. Um, (laughs) Is that possible? You know, what does it look like to make amends? What does atonement look like? What does reconciliation look like? Mm. Um, You know, it's very easy, I think, to say, you know, to move through the world as I've done for most of my life, assuming that, you know, I am right. And anyone who disagrees with me is not only wrong, but also probably stupid. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right yeah yeah I know right? that point of view <laughs> I know that point of view very well um you know and trying to kind of tamp down that enormous ego um at least a little bit mm-hmm. and you know really challenge you know myself with these bigger questions of you know not just all of the ways in which I you know would personally hope to improve but people who have done really terrible things, you know, what space do we create, um, for them to also, you know, hopefully 
not at least at the very least not continue to make the world worse and those i think are really tough questions for for people that care about the kind of things that that we care about um but you know have really been kind of on the front of my mind for the past year Mm -hmm. yeah that that balance with the holding people accountable and also holding them in compassion Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's not easy yeah i can see how yoga would support you in opening up to that. <laughs> yes, definitely. For anyone who ever has a chance to do yoga with Jill, by the way, I can't recommend her teaching highly enough. <laughs> that yoga one day yoga retreat that you held was still like one of my favorite experiences ever. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. I'm glad so. you enjoyed it. And you know, you this is reminding me that you asked me to send you the sequence. And I have it. <laughs> It's okay. You're busy. You were busy being a social justice warrior. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm not like keeping it a secret for any good reason. I just keep forgetting. (laughs) This like amazing, like heart opening, hip opening sequence. Ugh, it's so good. It's so good. I have it in one of my notebooks. Um, It may just end up being a photograph that I like text you, but I'll send it. I swear. That's totally fine. A photograph is great. And I'll try to incorporate it into my bedside yoga. (laughs) (sighs) Okay, so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes again now and take a couple deep breaths for our wrap-up questions. So looking back on a year ago today from where you are now, the person that you are now, the woman, the human that you are now, (laughs) and feeling all that anxiety that you felt before the release of the book and appreciating the journey of everything that's happened since the book came out. I'd love to share, I'd love for you to share in one word how you're feeling today. Hmm. Centered. Mm. Love that. And if you could speak directly to yourself a year ago today, what would you say to her? Suck it up. Go to the reading. (laughs) It's going to be fine. Have fun with your friends afterward. (laughs) Don't worry about it so much. (laughs) Mm. It's so true. Oh, my gosh. Maybe I'll use – I was at her reading, you guys. Maybe I'll use that picture of us for the promo for this episode oh yeah I love that photo that's very cute (laughs) all right well we'll put all of your info everything in the show notes links to everything we've talked about will be in the show notes is there anything else you'd like to say to everybody out there listening before we sign off no just thank you so much Tyla for having me and for creating this incredible space I really appreciate it you are so so welcome I can't even begin to tell you what a pleasure it is to host you here and how much I'm looking forward to the next time we connect (laughs) yes Um, hopefully hopefully very very soon yeah so I guess we'll let this be bye for now bye everybody listening all right talk to you soon Tyler 